Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's Fermentation Day here at the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast. We're going to be talking about kimchi, one of my favorite foods of all time. Uh, and also, later in the episode, just wanted to give you a heads up. Robert and I are going to chat about kimchi for a while first, but later on, we're going to be speaking with a bona fide fermentation expert from a Tufts fermentation lab. Her name is Dr. Esther Miller, and it sounds like she's got one of the coolest jobs in the world. Yeah. Given the the title uh, we went with here, uh, Kimchi, A Song of Salt and Cabbage, I guess it's a missed opportunity for us to have done some sort of um, um, Westeros themed uh, cold open skit about um, about kimchi. Well, I guess the uh, the, the real uh, prince who was promised in the story is the lactobacillus bacteria, and, uh, <laughs> and he must come in order to rescue the fermentation, for the jar is dark and full of spores. <laughs> That's pretty good. But of course, you know, there's some, there, there has to have been some pickling and, ferm- and or fermentation in uh, the Westeros books, because it seems like there were always lengthy descriptions of what kind of foods uh, uh, characters were eating. Yeah, but a lot of it is, I think, like a classic Anglo cuisine inspired, which is mm. is actually very low. On, well, I don't want to be insulting. I, I would say at least the perception is that it's relatively low on, on spices and, and complex flavors. It tends to be a rather bland cuisine kind of focused on grain, meat and dairy. <laughs> All right, but then I do. We do have to to point out that I guess there was beer, there was cheese, mm-hmm. there was bread, and, right. and that's one of the reasons that fermented foods are so fascinating because there there are these things that we often forget are fermented, like cheese and bread and chocolate, and then we have these fermented um, you know staples of various uh, fermented goods that you're going to have in your your kitchen, uh, and also some of the more. Um, elaborate uh, examples. Uh, for instance, uh, there's the, the kiviak, which uh, is a traditional Inuit food from Greenland in which little ox, these, uh, these little birds, are caught and then fermented in a seal skin that's buried beneath rocks. There's a great feature on this in the documentary series Human Planet that came out several years back and was at the time narrated by John Hurt. I got to admit, as much as I love fermented foods, I have never tried that one. And a lot of the fermented foods that I've never really gotten into are the various kinds of fermented meats and dairy products from around the world, which are extremely common, though uh, I think fermented vegetable dishes such as kimchi have seen more of an international renaissance in in recent years. Yeah, I feel like when I was a kid, I I wasn't as exposed to as many fermented foods, uh, aside from these obviously fermented foods. You know, uh, like I remember... I remember being exposed to sauerkraut, but not really digging it for a long time. Oh. Uh, but but now, uh, what you don't is that is that a good uh or a bad uh? Oh, sauerkraut? I'm just I'm just so sorry for your deprived childhood. I mean, I I can oh. remember loving sauerkraut as long as I had. One of my earliest positive food memories is actually uh, a memory of eating a half sour pickle. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I just, uh, I, I don't know. It, it's always been there for me, the love of especially like fermented pickled vegetables. So good. I think I just had kind of had to work up to it. Like some of those strong flavors, like there was some sort of German, um, uh, oh, some sort of purple cabbage type thing that I also didn't have a, a real strong uh, 
attraction to at the time. But all these things have grown on me. And today I, I, I love sauerkraut and I love kimchi. Uh, I love exploring the various fermented veggie or mushroom items you'll find uh, uh, in various cuisines. And, and my son, who is eight now, he's been pretty, pretty into all things fermented pretty much his whole life. Uh, as, as long as they're not actually spicy, uh, that's where he has a little more of a struggle. Uh, but ultimately, I don't know how much of this is, is nature versus nurture with him, though. Yeah, I wonder about that, too, because fermented vegetables, definitely they can have strong kind of unfamiliar uh, flavors and aromas that take some getting used to. So I would imagine that having a taste for fermented foods is somewhat learned, though then again, I I wonder if there could actually be an instinct or at least a slight predisposition that humans would have to find certain kinds of smells and flavors associated with vegetable fermentation appetizing, since this could be a possible vector to get useful gut bacteria and other beneficial microbes. Uh, I think there's good evidence that a lot of these good microbes do actually survive the digestion process and and can help uh, recolonize the gut with with beneficial bacteria. Uh, and then, of course, having healthy gut bacteria could provide some kind of survival advantage. So I, I wonder, it's, it's possible. I can imagine that there's some kind of instinctual predisposition that animals like humans could have uh, to, to find these smells and flavors appealing. And another thing I would say is that you can contrast the appealing or at least potentially appealing smell of fermented foods like kimchi or yogurt with the smell of food that's rotting due to an unambiguously unfriendly microbe. In these cases, our visceral reaction to the smell, I think, is much different. It's sort of automatic, instinctive revulsion. Uh, you know, some people might be grossed out by the smell of kimchi or sauerkraut, but I think that negative reaction is qualitatively different than the, like, you know, hot garbage kind of reaction people have to the smell of, like, real dangerous spoilage in foods. Yeah, like the like the actual, like, dead animal smell, which really connects with us on a, on a primal level. Like, when you smell it, you know it. You not, might not be able to summon that smell in your head right now, but it's undeniable when you encounter it. Um, and now I've, I've, I've read some different things about... Uh, about you know kids and, and flavor, just through I think virtue of of, of being a, a parent, I know there's the the argument that you know since a child has a smaller body and is more susceptible to the the dangers of of poisons, that uh, that they are going to be overly sensitive to certain strong smells or flavors. Then um, there's also this angle. I've not done any like full research into it, and perhaps this would be a, a topic for the future. But I know that uh, biopsychologist uh, Julie Manella has researched uh, the topic a bit uh, regarding uh, you know uh, uh, whether we are born with certain food preferences in mind, and she has some work that shows that food preferences may be developed in the womb or during very early life. So we're talking prenatally and postnatally, involving both uh, amniotic fluid and breast milk. So if I'm understanding it correctly, the diet of a child's biological mother can influence the child's taste later on. Yeah, that would not be surprising to me. I mean, I, I think a lot of things uh, from the fr from the parents' environment can come through to the child like that. Um, but another thing, you know, I'm thinking about with with people's taste for fermented foods 
is that it could be a psychological framing issue. You know, we've talked before about the research showing that people you can take the same smell and that people might find it appealing if you blindfold them and tell them the smell is coming from a cheese, but find it disgusting if you blindfold them and tell them it's coming from a sock. Uh, for people on a Western diet who are unfamiliar with kimchi or with other fermented vegetables and find the smell off-putting, it's possible that it's, you know, that it's similar aromas that they would find appealing if they just, uh, had more of a reason to associate them with say the idea of vegetables, because like some of the aromas that come off of kimchi can smell kind of cheesy. And that's a strange thing to smell coming off of vegetables if you're not used to it. Yeah, I, I've, I think I've voiced a similar thing with durian fruit before. Durian fruit, of course, is, is beloved in many parts of the world, but sometimes is less appreciated, uh, certainly in, in Western circles. And I think part of that is like if – yeah, my, my take anyway is that if you approach the durian as being a cheese and not a fruit, mm-hmm. uh, then, then <laughs> that's going to dismantle some of these uh, associations you, you, you make. Because when you take in the aroma of the durian fruit, you might think, well, that, that doesn't smell like I expect a fruit to smell. I, I'm more accustomed to a really sweet smell with a fruit or something much milder. But if you approach it thinking cheese, then I, I think you're in a better position to enjoy it. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And it almost makes me wonder if there <laughs> is there a certain kind of meditation practice that uh, has been honed in order to ready the mind to experience new flavors and aromas as hmm. pleasurable when you're not used to them. I wonder if I there is know. such a thing. I think maybe, yeah, maybe just a general sort of uh, centering uh, of the self is probably would probably be helpful in those cases. Uh, I do want to point out, too, though, uh, in, in terms of durian fruit, I don't have a lot of ex- experience eating durian fruit. So anytime I have encountered it, I am very much, I feel like, encountering it as an outsider to, like, regular consumption. So I would love to hear from anyone out there who has, like, you know, grown up with durian fruit and how you, like, because ultimately my whole think of it as a cheese and not a fruit thing, that may be entirely based uh, as well in my uh, situation as kind of a durian outsider. Yeah, I can see that. But uh, obviously, I mean, tastes that were once unfamiliar to us can become very, very central to our way of experiencing food in the world. I mean, I... So I grew up loving pickled vegetables, but I did not. Um, I did not grow up with kimchi, and now kimchi is one of my favorite foods. I mean, if you if you like pin me down and said like you know, uh, if, if you could only eat one kind of food the rest of your life, what would it be? I would try to reach for something like well, something that could be served with banchan. You know, all, all those little dishes like Korean side dishes of various yeah. different vegetable preparations and kimchi and things like that. That's the bullseye for me. That's like the best thing. And and it wasn't always there. So like our, clearly our orientations uh, about food can change as we mature or may, maybe I shouldn't say mature just uh, as we go on in life. So in terms of just fermentation in general, we'll get back more specifically to kimchi uh, here in a bit. I was reading a bit about it from fermentation expert uh, Sandor Katz. I'm, I'm sure he's come up in your research as well. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, you know, off, often cited and he's written several books on, on the topic. And, the sauerkraut uh, king. <laughs> yeah. Katz points out that if you venture into any restaurant on the planet, if you dig into any cuisine, you're going to find products of fermentation. And again, this includes more obvious examples such as, uh, you know, the sauerkraut and the kimchi. But it also means bread, cheese, salad dressing, alcohol alcohol, etc. In fact, uh, you know, he contends that it's hard to get through the day without engaging with a product of fermentation. All right. So we're naming 
fairly disparate seeming food items. I mean, what do bread and cheese and sauerkraut and kimchi really have in common? What 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 is it? What is the core process of fermentation? Well, in a nutshell, we're talking about the chemical breakdown of a substance by bacteria, yeasts, or other microorganisms, typically involving uh, effervescence and the giving off of heat. Most notably, it enables humans to preserve food and store it for travel. Um, or, or for uh, you know for hard times, and in, as such, it was often vital for human expansion into harsher climates. It's something a, a way that you could take your food with you, and it would survive and be edible when you get to your destination, or allow you to uh, to have food in a destination that is that is harsher. Right. I mean, one of the big roles of fermentation, I think, clearly is, uh, especially the fermentation of vegetables, is preserving vegetable products through the winter. Uh, the traditional preparation cycle for kimchi involves packing it into pots in the autumn that can be eaten throughout the winter, I guess throughout the rest of the year, uh, when fresh vegetables would be hard to come by. Uh, so as is often the case with food traditions, I think many forms of fermentation, vegetable fermentation, likely followed a path of beginning with a mistake and then moving to utilitarian innovation as a preservative, but eventually just becoming a taste preference, becoming something people liked because it's good. But I also wanted to go back to a note you had on the idea of effervescence in fermentation, uh, this this idea of effervescence or bubbling. Uh, this is actually one of my favorite things about certain kinds of kimchi. It's not always like this, but certain kinds of uh, kimchi not only have these great complex flavors and pleasing crunch, it sometimes has something you don't find in other solid foods, which is a palpable taste of carbonation in the mouth. Sometimes kimchi can kind of bubble and fizz and zing in your mouth while you're chewing on it, the same way that a sip of a carbonated drink does. And and this is one thing I really love. That this bubbling property of fermentation is also what creates, of course, you know, the crumb structure or the holes in a loaf of bread. Uh, but these bubbles are gas given off by the yeast in bread as they metabolize the sugar in the dough. The effervescent property in uh, in kimchi, of course, is the uh, is the CO two produced by the bacteria as they break down the sugars in the cabbage. Uh, but uh, this effervescent property of giving off bubbles or gas was actually probably where the word fermentation comes from. It's derived ultimately from the Latin word fervere, meaning to boil or to seethe. And ancient Latin speakers probably would have been able to observe that as grape juice sat in vats and the natural yeasts turned its sugar content into alcohol to make wine, it would give off bubbles as if it were somehow boiling without an external heat source. Uh, but anyway, so I was reading about uh, fermentation in a, in a book called The Noma Guide to Fermentation. It's written by the staff of the, the famous uh, Nordic Cuisine Restaurant. But there, there are several ways they point out that you can define fermentation, which are basically all scientifically correct at different levels of zooming in. Uh, the first is that fermentation is the transformation of foods by microorganisms. You let the microbes do something to the food. The second is that it's the transformation of foods by enzymes produced by the microorganisms. Specifically, what they're doing is they're participating in the chemical breakdown of molecules in the food. So they're breaking down long starch chains into different pieces of those chains, getting little different sugars and things. They're breaking down long protein chains into smaller pieces of those chains. Uh, but then finally... They say it is, quote, the process by which a microorganism converts sugar into another substance in the absence of oxygen. 
And, uh, and as, as we know, there are different microbes that are involved in different kinds of fermentation. So, for example, you've got yeast, which is a fungal microbe. It's a fungus. And it's the agent primarily involved in the creation of bread, but also wine and beer. While the agent most important to the fermentation of vegetables like cabbage in sauerkraut and kimchi is lactic acid bacteria, and we'll get into more detail on that later, uh, but the gist is that if you take a bunch of vegetables, such as cabbage, doesn't have to be cabbage, but this is often the vegetable used, you put salt on them, they'll kind of wilt down, release water, create a brine that's salty in nature, and the salt creates an environment where certain kinds of bacteria that are tolerant of salt can thrive and overtake other microbes which are less tolerant uh, of salt. And as they take over, these lactic acid bacteria further drive out other biological contaminants with the byproducts of their metabolism. Metabolism. In the case of lactic acid bacteria, as they eat the sugars in the vegetables and the brine, they excrete lactic acid, which of course is an acid. It lowers the pH of the brine. It acts as a preservative, so it inhibits the growth of other microbes, kind of like if you had added an acid directly, like if you added vinegar or some other acid to pickle your food. Except a major difference is that the flavors that come out of the bacterial acid production process are so much more complex and rich than the sort of one-note flavor of a simple dash of vinegar. Now, fermentation, of course, uh, as I think is, is already coming out, occurs without human intention all the time. Yeah. No humans are required for this. And examples range from the fermentation of fallen fruit to the uh, enteric fermentation inside a creature's digestive system. Yeah, and th this is actually an evolutionary adaptation. Enteric fermentation is really interesting. So it is a symbiotic adaptation uh, involving multiple different species working together. And it, it's used by many animals, including ruminant herbivores like sheep and cattle and camels. And it allows them to survive on a diet of tough, cellulose-riddled plant matter that animals like us simply couldn't digest. I mean, if you and I go out and eat a bunch of grass, my, my dog tries it sometimes, but <laughs> I don't think it really helps them all that much. Um, I mean, we, we, we just would not be able to get much energy out of it at all. But there is an advantage to surviving on a diet like this if you can. Obviously, tough plant matter like grass is abundant. It's easy to capture. There's lots of it. It doesn't run or fight back. But it's just hard to get useful chemical energy out of it. So animals with natural enteric fermentation use the help of a cultivated microbiome. They have chambers in their digestive system, specifically for the microbial breakdown of tough plant matter. And it transforms all that grass and stuff like that into simple sugars that can be easily used as energy by the animal. So it's almost like these ruminant herbivores have a kimchi jar inside their digestive system. <laughs> But, uh, you know, if you've ever tried to make kimchi at home, which I am uh, doing right now, one thing you know is that as the, the fermentation happens, you either need to have a, a ventable lid on the jar that will allow gas to escape, or you need to burp it frequently. You need to take the top off and let the gas out, or pressure can really build up with some disastrous consequences, which we can talk about a little, a little more later. And a similar thing actually goes on with animals that undergo enteric fermentation, because uh, these ruminant herbivores end up uh, having to burp out an awful lot of byproduct gas, generally methane. Right. And in large enough quantity, which is generally the case with, say, cows that are, uh, that are, that are raised uh, uh, by humans, that actually adds up and has an impact on climate. 
Yeah, that's absolutely right. And in fact, I, I know there are ongoing projects to try to fiddle with that to say, like, can we actually get down the level of methane that is exhaled by these ruminant herbivores by making certain tweaks to, say, their gut microbiota hmm. or to their or to exactly what the sugars in their diet are and things like that. So that's cows. But when it comes to humans and specifically when it comes to the intentional use of fermentation, of the fermentation process, this is widely considered a Neolithic technology. We're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we will dive into what we know of the history of fermentation. All right, we're back. So, Robert, you, you teased us about the history of fermentation, saying that intentional use of fermentation uh, of foods by humans is something that goes back to the Stone Age, the Neolithic era. Right, uh, you know, at, at least. Uh, so evidence of fermented beverages in China, for instance, seem to date back to the 7th millennium BCE based on evidence from a Neolithic village in Henan province. Uh, and this, this evidence revealed a, a fermented mixture of rice, honey, and fruit. This was mentioned in, um, in, a, in a paper titled Fermented Beverages in Pre- and Proto-Historic China from PNAS uh, in 2004, uh, written by McGovern et al. And then I was also looking at a 2016 study from Adam uh, Bothius in the Journal of Archaeological Science, and that puts a date on Scandinavian fermentation evidence to 9,200 years ago during the early Mesolithic. Uh, this would have been processed fish. So the idea here is that they were using something described as a gutter to ferment fish in, preserving it for later. The author uh, discovered evidence of this gutter uh, along with vast quantities of well-preserved fish bones uh, to support this argument. And fermented fish products are actually very common. Now, it, you might not know that you've been consuming them, but uh, examples include Worcestershire sauce. This is a fermented fish product. Or, of course, uh, Asian fish sauces, nam pla. These are, are made by salting fish and then using the uh, extracted liquid that comes out as the strong, deeply complex, salty flavoring agent. Uh, another example would be an ancient Roman food known as uh, garum, which was uh, actually in many, in many ways similar to Asian fish sauce. Uh, so fermented fish products are, are actually in wide use around the world today. You, you might not always think about them being the product of rotting fish, but or you know, controlled rot. <laughs> uh, but that's what they are. Yeah, and if you want more on garum and uh, and, and various uh, fish fermentation uh, in product sauces, we did an episode of Invention about ketchup and and how all this ties into the history of the product we now know as ketchup. Yeah. Now, as for the fermentation of vegetables, uh, that's key to what we're talking about here with kimchi. And it's believed that this, too, came before the agricultural revolution. So before we were able, as humans, to harness crop technology, to control uh, and manipulate the way crops grow for our benefit, we harnessed the power to preserve those goods through fermentation. This is fascinating, and it reminds me of the evidence that we've discussed previously that the invention of bread probably predates the invention of agriculture uh, before wheat and other grains were staple crops that people grew on purpose. 
it looks like we have pretty good evidence that Stone Age peoples were harvesting wild grains, such as einkorn wheatgrass, taking taking those grains and then baking bread out of it. Uh, the, the evidence we talked about was a paper published in 2018 in PNAS by uh, Arons Otegui et al. And basically, the authors here were looking at an archaeological site in Jordan that was an ancient cooking site from about 14,000 years ago, and they found matter that looks very much like breadcrumbs there. So these would be bread predating the agricultural revolution by thousands of years. Now, as for kimchi itself, so we've already described it a bit and talked about it a bit. We'll get into a little more detail here. There are a lot of fermented items out there that we can compare to kimchi. But, uh, Joe, I don't don't know if you'd agree with this, but I feel like in in many ways there's nothing quite like it. Oh, yeah. I mean, I I love fermented vegetables generally, but kimchi is in a class all of its own. It is a culinary sui generis. (laughs) Now, Now, at a very basic level, what we're talking about here is a traditional side dish of salted and fermented vegetables, generally something like napa cabbage, Korean radish, made with a varying selection of of traditional seasonings. Yeah, uh, a very common preparation for kimchi would be you take Napa cabbage, you salt it to to, to begin a wilting process that'll bring water out of it, and then you prepare a brine or a marinade that'll be made out of a Korean chili flake, often gochugaru, which is a a red chili flake, um, and then ginger, garlic, often some kind of fermented fish product such as salted shrimp or fish sauce, uh, and then other other ingredients such as maybe grated carrots – uh, scallions. Um, I, might, I might be leaving a few things out here, but, but that's a pretty standard preparation. Now, I was reading about kimchi in the history of Korean gochu, goguchang, and kimchi in the Journal of Ethnic Foods from 2014, and this was by Kwan et al. And uh, it points out that, you know, as you might imagine, fermentation in Korea began as a means of preserving vegetables. Normally, the, the Chinese cabbage or kimchi cabbage, as it is known today, it decomposes at normal temperatures due to the action of microorganisms. The authors here point out that uh, specifically with, with modern kimchi, you add red pepper powder uh, containing capsaicin to the uh, cabbage, uh, and this suppresses the growth of, uh, of putrefying bacteria and promotes lactic acid bacteria. The microorganisms here, the authors write, grow and change into a form that humans can consume. Now, the basic process here is responsible for other key Korean fermented food products as well, uh, such as gogochang, chiangokchang, and doenjang. But one of the the key ingredients in modern kimchi is the the gochu, the the Korean red pepper, uh, this powder, which, uh, again, is involved in arresting putrefaction and leads to the production of lactic acid. And there are different varieties of gochu. I think there are like four main categories. Now, in terms of when the gochu peppers become involved in the process, apparently there I was I was not really prepared for this, but apparently there's some back and forth about when they actually enter Korean cuisine. Yeah, I was surprised to find that there's some kind of controversy. It's apparently a somewhat contested issue. Uh, that's infused maybe with modern political concerns, like when exactly different types of kimchi came to exist. Yeah. Um, for instance, that Quan paper that I that I just mentioned, uh, in that they contend that, quote, gochu started to grow on the Korean peninsula a few billion years ago, and it is safe to say it is original to Korea. Hmm. So that's that is very much um, 
uh, in disagreement with with some of the uh, information we're going to get to here in a second, but I wanted Mm -hmm. to go ahead and put that out there. There's also apparently an argument that kimchi is less than a century old, with the pepper being introduced to Korea via Japan during World War II. But this is strongly dismissed in many sources, including a 2015 paper by Jang et al. in Journal of Ethnic Foods, citing the Chronicles of the Three Kingdoms of Korea as as an historical source dating kimchi back at least 1,500 years in Korean culinary tradition. The argument here is that it it would have been invented thousands of years ago, uh, and then, but, but we see it, at least some evidence of it, fifteen hundred years ago. Yeah, based on the historical sources I was reading, it, it seems like the the most likely thing is that. Uh, kimchi is definitely an ancient Korean food, but the introduction of peppers specifically is more recent. Right. Yeah, that seems to be the case. Like you don't you don't need, or you at least didn't need peppers for kimchi, uh, you know, throughout most of its history. But then you end up uh, seeing the introduction of these peppers. I was reading uh, the Colombian Exchange: A History of Disease, Food, and Ideas by Nathan Nunn and Nancy Kwan, who point out that the peppers used here, uh, the pepper alone, not the Korean fermentation traditions, etc., have a new world origin. So uh, these peppers would have originated in areas of what is today Bolivia and southern Brazil. From there, they traveled into Mesoamerica and the Caribbean before the arrival of Europeans who then took it elsewhere. So along these lines, the Korean chili pepper was probably introduced to Korea in the early 16th century. And the actual kimchi tradition was much older, however, and seems to have its roots in Chinese pickling. And here's what uh, J. Bach Park wrote about it in Red Pepper and Kimchi in Korea in the Chili Pepper Institute paper from 1999. Quote, it's thought that kimchi may have originated from Chinese pickles. These pickles were brought to Korea and were altered into several types of kimchi to suit the taste of Koreans during uh, the Shila and Korea dynasties. That's uh, CE 645 uh, through 935 and CE 918 through 1392, respectively. Uh, anyway, uh, the author continues. Quote, since red peppers were imported to Korea in the early part of the 17th century, whole cabbage kimchi and other kimchi prepared with hot red pepper became popular. Yeah, and this matches up with everything I was reading. Uh, and, and in fact, while gochugaru, the red pepper flake, is a very important ingredient in some of the most popular forms of kimchi, I believe there are still forms of kimchi made that don't involve it. They might be known as like white kimchi that might in fact be more similar to the older tradition that would of course involve salting the cabbage. It would involve adding flavorings to the, to the brine or the marinade, but would, uh, but, but don't bring in the hot peppers. Yeah. So I know I do want to stress though, that we've only briefly gone over the history uh, here, but obviously we've touched on various elements that involve colonial and imperial expansion. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, it's, it's obvious why uh, sometimes, um, you know, some of these are very impassioned arguments. Uh, plus, it seems like it is difficult to overstate just how important kimchi is in Korean culinary culture. Uh, there's a, a 2016 article on NPR's The Salt titled, How South Korea Uses Kimchi to Connect to the World and Beyond, and, and it shares the following. Quote, kimchi is not just cabbage salad. It is essential to the culture of the country. There are hundreds of different varieties of kimchi in Korea, and about 1.5 million tons of it is consumed each year. Even the Korean stock market reflects this obsession. The kimchi index tracks when Napa cabbage and the 12 other ingredients chili, carrots, radishes, and anchovies among them are at their best prices. 
Yeah, there's been a pretty concerted effort uh, over the years by the South Korean government to promote kimchi as a as a sort of trendy food worldwide and i i can't you know i can't say i blame them like you've got you've got this great culinary tradition why not use that to to help engender love for your culture around the world yeah yeah share it with the world and that's where you see initiatives like the kimchi bus i don't know if you ran across articles about this no i didn't um this was which was is supported in some part by the south korean government and it you know i don't think it's active right now, uh, but it at least was traveling around to various countries and spreading traditional Korean food and kimchi, um, you know, very, very much spreading the word of kimchi. It's like an Iowa campaign bus for kimchi. Yeah. Like the kimchi is going to get out and give a speech. <laughs> Now, uh, that uh, article from The Salt, it also points out some other uh, cool facts about uh, about the culture of kimchi and, uh, and related foods. Uh, it points out that uh, kimjang, the tradition of making kimchi, has long been a unifying tradition amid K- Korean villages and a sustaining one through periods of hardship. And that kimjang was even added to the UNESCO representative list of the intangible cultural heritage of humanity. Which is pretty impressive. Absolutely. So again, the Kimjang would be these uh, these events where people gather together to make their their pots of kimchi in the autumn that can be buried for the winter or the rest of the year. Yeah, yeah. Based on this article's description, it seems like it, you know it was sort of a community wide or even cross community kimchi making enterprise, spreading the labor intensive process out amid a large group of people. So it's not just you know. My household is making kimchi today. It's no, we, we as a community, you know, or even we as, you know, as people are making kimchi today. Well, I, you know, I was telling you about this the other day, actually, that uh, my experiments in making kimchi at home have been a, a solitary project so far. But I can absolutely see how making kimchi would be a really fun social family and friends kind of project. It's something mm-hmm. fun to do with the kids because, like, the kids can maybe work on massaging the, the salt into the cabbage and massaging in the uh, the, the marinade between the leaves – and you can talk while you're doing it. I mean, it, it seems like an ideal social food preparation uh, situation. Yeah, it sounds fun. You were mentioning the specific jars you have for it. And uh-huh. I think we actually have one of those jars because I think we have some sort of sauerkraut kit that just hasn't been used yet, you know, <laughs> uh-huh. uh, that we've been eyeing. And so that might uh, – it seems like that might be uh, usable for this process as well. Oh, yeah. Uh, so to further clarify out there, what what I had been offering to share uh, with Robert was, was burp lids for jars, which I got, uh, which allows you to – you know, in case you forget about the kimchi you've got going in the jar, it's not going to blow the lid off or anything. It's got a little vent where if the pressure really builds up inside, the CO2 can escape out the vent. Now, speaking of, of pressurized spaces, uh, this gets right into the next thing I w- uh, wanted to talk about here that I know you were excited about as well, Joe. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, and that's you have something as, as culturally important as kimchi. Uh, this is one of the reasons that kimchi has gone into space. <laughs> So in 2008, South uh, Korea's uh, uh, Soeun Yi was selected to be the country's first astronaut. And the government uh, apparently had worked nearly a decade to create uh, kimchi as well as uh, other Korean dishes that could potentially be taken into space, that were space ready uh, for just such an individual. 
Now, as for why, uh, why take kimchi into space? Well, okay, so f- there are a few different reasons. So one of them, of course, we again, we've touched on the cultural importance of the dish. If you're sending an astronaut into space, that is not only a scientific endeavor, it is, you know, it's about, uh, you know, national pride to a large extent. So you, it makes sense to want to send something as important as kimchi up with them. On an individual level, we've talked about this in the past concerning space food. You know, th- this is um, uh, going into space is a physically and mentally um, – uh, you know, exhausting uh, endeavor. So if you have something meaningful for them to, to eat up there, you know, some sort of bit of some sort of food that that not only sustains them, but perhaps reminds them of home, etc. Like that's 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 a win. So there's been a, there's always been an effort to do that with the food that is sent up with astronauts. But then on top of that, microgravity often is often described as uh, is living in microgravity rather is often described as being in this kind of state of perpetual nasal blockage, right? Right. Because every Everything's just kind of, um, you know, without gravity, everything just kind of moves up and or just floats free. So this is one of the reasons that it's kind of difficult to taste food uh, in space. And so you want something with a strong flavor, uh, perhaps spice to it, if you really want to, to, to taste anything. And that's one of the reasons that NASA's shrimp cocktail has apparently been popular for years, not because people want uh, those, you know, those shrimp that have been kind of stepped on mm-hmm. <laughs> before shrimp. they go into orbit. Mm. But it's that, it's that horseradish in the cocktail sauce. Like it has a strong spicy flavor and it can kind of clear your head a bit. That's right. Yeah, it opens up those nasal passages. There's there's something there you can detect as as far as flavor and aroma goes. Um, but a- another thing I wanted to emphasize again, uh, the idea of a, a Korean astronaut having access to kimchi as part of their food in space. This is not just important because obviously it is part of Korean cuisine, but that it is such a regular part of traditional Korean culinary life that yeah. um, that kimchi, you know, it's not unusual for kimchi to be served at basically every meal on every uh, on a Korean table. Right. Yeah, it is. It is the, the traditional side dish. So, you know, it, it would be so in a similar sense, you know, it's like, of course, there's ketchup in space or some version of it, because that is like the staple of some people's diets. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, kimchi is very much the same affair. But the idea of taking kimchi into space, while of course a wonderful idea as far as the the flavor and the comfort that that it can provide, it immediately calls to mind some particular hazards in the case of kimchi that are not the case with other foods. Uh, Because have you ever seen what happens when there is a sealed jar of kimchi without a burping lid and the fermentation gets a little too aggressive, gets a little frisky? Uh, I've not seen it. (laughs) You should look up video of this, Rob. Okay. And so the microbes inside the fermentation will produce CO2 as they do their business, and they can produce so much CO2 that they can basically blow the lids off of jars. Or maybe uh, maybe if they don't blow the lid off, when you open the jar, suddenly it's like, you know, it's like Mentos in a Diet Coke. It's like spewing spicy marinade everywhere, and the cabbage puffs up out of the top like, you know, a muffin coming out of its mold or like a Yorkshire pudding. Uh, it, can, it can look really funny. And I've actually read stories of this being a real problem for people who have tried transporting kimchi in luggage in airplanes. I don't know if they let you do that anymore, but this at least has been a problem for some people I'd read about in the past. Like you would take a jar overseas with you or something, and sometimes the jar can explode in your luggage and soak everything in spicy, rotting cabbage water, which is delicious, but not really something you want to fully saturate your underwear. (laughs) Um, uh, that uh, that that uh, article from the Salt that I mentioned earlier—they have a little bit more about the um, about taking kimchi into space. 
And uh, they actually talked to uh, Yi, the astronaut, about this, asking, you know, what was it like? And uh, the one thing they point out is that for the kimchi to go into space, it had to be, uh, be radiated to kill all of the, mi- the microorganisms in it. Right, Which yeah. uh, Yi says left it looking, quote, so saggy it looked like it was 100 years old. <laughs> Uh, so it apparently, you know, didn't taste maybe like terrestrial kimchi, but apparently it tasted it, it tasted enough like kimchi that it did the job. You know, it uh, it it packed the, the you know the spicy uh, fermented punch, and it reminded them of home. So uh, mission accomplished. Well, th- this is an important point because okay, so obviously there there are multiple reasons you'd probably want to kill all of the microbes in the kimchi, and you'd want to irradiate it before you take it into space. You definitely don't want kimchi blowing the lid off of its jar inside a space station that would be uh that could be disastrous like spills are not good in microgravity but anyway it really emphasizes that that kimchi is at its core a living product and you can have kimchi that's been sterilized i mean sometimes people uh, sometimes i cook it before i eat it especially when it gets older you know you can saute it in a pan and add it as an as an ingredient to things and then of course oh yeah like kimchi fried rice for example oh yeah it's fantastic delicious uh but but at that point it is sterile before cooking it or before irradiating it if you've just got a jar of kimchi sitting in your fridge i mean this is a living organism this this kimchi that you're eating the the life goes on within it and it will even though the fermentation will be much slowed down by the temperatures inside a refrigerator uh it, it is still alive and things are still happening there it is still maturing it is still evolving as an ecosystem absolutely now speaking of that that ecosystem I, let's bring everything back down from space uh not only to the earth but under the earth because we've already referenced a few types of fermentation uh, that entails burying a vessel or using some sort of a, a gutter, uh, you know, made in earth or stone. It's worth noting that the traditional means of creating kimchi also entails burying uh, uh, the uh, uh, the container, uh, bearing what Michael Pollan in his 2013 book Cooked described as a child-sized earthenware crock. <laughs> so I wanted to read just an excerpt from that that uh, excellent book, which, by, by the way, mentions kimchi a lot. So if, you, uh, if you're looking for, you know, a really good book about, uh, about food, science, and history, you know, of course, always turn to Michael Pollan. Uh, but particularly, this book has a lot of kimchi in it. But here's what he had to say. Quote, nowadays, pit fermentation strikes most of us as primitive, strange, and unsanitary. Yet we think nothing of aging cheeses underground in caves, which is not so very different. And how different is a pit fermentation really from fermenting food in a crock? Earthenware, as it's called, is really just earth once removed. Cleaner and more portable, perhaps, but otherwise the same basic idea. Even today, Koreans bury their child-sized crocks of kimchi in the backyard in order to maintain the even, cool conditions that the lactobacilli prefer. The earthenware crock is a good reminder that every ferment is food and drink stolen or borrowed from the earth by temporarily diverting its microbial gravitational pull to our own end. Everyone knows who stole the power of fire from the gods for the benefit of humankind. But who is the Prometheus of pickling? <laughs> that sounds like a great story. To find. Where is I, I? I would be shocked if there was not some mythical tradition that had a story of uh, a god giving the gift of pickling or fermentation to humans. 
Yeah, it seems I, I hadn't haven't had a chance to look into it, but I I would assume that some god or another would have that at least on their their resume. You know, mm-hmm. for Pollen's part, he goes on in, the, in this book to to think, well, okay, pickling fermentation. These are not going to be as as jazzy as killing animals or um or or certainly uh, creating fire. These other acts of uh, of early uh, human endeavor that were so important. But there's still there are others, including uh, Sandor Katz, who we mentioned earlier, who has apparently put it. Uh, on par with fire uh, in our history, saying like like pickling, um, uh, fermentation, uh, these processes are up there with our uh, fire technology in terms of their importance to our our uh, our history. Well, yeah, I would say especially if you uh, go with. Remember, we talked previously about the importance of bread in the development of uh, of human civilization because of the kinds of nutrition that it could provide relative to its own ingredients raw. And of course, fermentation is an important part of many breads. There are also unleavened breads, but you know, yeah. So I, I think it's there at the heart. I don't know if it's quite at the level of fire, but especially if you're going for like the richness of human life and pleasure in food and all that. It's got to be right up there. Now, I do want to say something real quick about the, the idea of the Prometheus of pickling. Now, in, in this case, I think Pollen is, is, is using pickling a little bit informally, but there is a distinction to be made between pickling and fermentation. Basically, pickling is preserving food with a salt brine, while fermentation involves bacteria. So some pickled foods are also fermented, but they don't have to be. Yeah, like for example, you can make pickled foods that have no microbial action in them at all. Like you just dump a bunch of like vinegar and other flavors. You can make a a pickle brine out of vinegar and salt and sugar or something like that, and it will be so vinegary that nothing will live within it. So there's no fermentation going on at all. Yeah, like I do some of these box meals, um, uh-huh. like, uh, like you know Martha meals, etc. And uh, and they'll often have me do some like very quick fridge pickles, or sometimes they don't even go in the fridge. And I have to say, sometimes I feel like I doubt myself. I'm like, am I really making something that I can call a pickle? Or did I just throw some salt at some cucumbers for like 10 minutes? Oh, you can call it a pickle. It's just not fermented. I mean, pickling yeah. is is a broader umbrella. Um, and, and there are major differences in flavor, I'm sure you've noticed. Like, you can achieve the same preservative effect either by salting cabbage, allowing the lactic acid bacteria to thrive, which in turn produces lactic acid, which lowers the pH of the environment and preserves the cabbage. Or you can just dump a bunch of acid like vinegar directly onto the food and just cut out the bacterial middleman. But you're losing a lot when you do that because the bacterial middleman actually makes a huge difference in the aroma, taste, and texture of the final product. The bacterial middleman produces a much greater diversity of flavorful compounds. Vinegar pickled foods can be great. I like them sometimes, but they are fairly one note. Fermented foods, on the other hand, are uh, very often described as funky and complex because of these wide ranges of of different uh, flavorful compounds that that come out of the microbial metabolism. Uh, Just one example, and there are tons of them, but uh, for for example, the cabbage fermentation process in many kinds of kimchi produces not only lactic acid, but compounds like diacetyl, which in other contexts, diacetyl is known to produce a distinctly 
buttery taste. Sometimes, for example, it's used as a flavoring in popcorn, quote, butter. Um, but th this is one of the reasons that fermented vegetables like kimchi can sometimes take on these counterintuitively dairy reminiscent flavors, butteriness, cheesiness, despite having no dairy content. Uh, and you might have encountered a similar flavor crossover from alcoholic beverages like wine. Like if you ever had a, a Chardonnay that tasted strangely like butter, uh, there could be multiple reasons for that, but a major one is, is diacetyl. Diacetyl from the metabolic processes of lactic acid bacteria in the wine could be partly responsible for that buttery flavor. And anyway, it's it's all of these metabolic uh, byproducts of the lactic acid bacteria that that create this richness and complexity of flavor that comes along with lacto-fermented vegetables like kimchi. Okay, we need to take a quick break, but when we come back, I'm going to be chatting about vegetable fermentation with Dr. Esther Miller. We are back, and now we're going to head straight into my chat with Dr. Esther Miller, who studies fermentation and microbial ecology at a center called the Wolf Lab at Tufts University. Here we go. Esther Miller, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, so to start off, could you talk a bit about your background and how you got into studying microbial ecology? Sure. Yeah. So I, I did a sort of wandering path to get into a PhD. So I started doing research at Oxford University on insects and uh, locust swarming. And I moved to Sydney and looked at uh, locusts in, in Australia. And then I became a high school teacher but missed science and then did work in a biotech company that also looked at insects. So I, I did a sort of diverse range of things before um, coming to do a PhD at Tufts University. And at Tufts, you do rotations. And I, I did a bit of a project in the Wolf Lab and I loved it. And I loved that it's uh, ecology. And so you're looking at how communities interact and how different populations interact. It's, but it's very small. I can do it in the lab. I don't have to go across Australia gathering locusts or anything like that. It's just on a plate in the lab. It's very simple. But it's also in food. I really love food. It was in cheese. Um, and I love cheese. And, you know, I moved to America from the UK and I didn't have access to good cheese. So the lab was a great place for um, getting cheese. But I, I wanted to keep on with the plant research and that sort of background. So I asked Professor Wolf, so I'm in the Wolf Lab, I asked Professor Wolf if I could start looking at microbial ecology. So the same things and the same questions that he was asking, but in um, sauerkraut and fermented vegetable products. And, and he'll let me. And it's um, it was great. So from there, I started developing ecological questions in this fermented vegetable uh, world. So one thing I can't leave off, you mentioned that you had done research with locusts. I was reading in another interview with you that I think was in Cook's Illustrated a few years ago that you you said that part of that research involved tickling the legs of locusts. But I, I was curious what, what that was in service of studying. What were you trying to find out by tickling locust legs? Yeah, so um, the desert locusts the Circle Gagaria, which all of your listeners will know if they've ever been to a pet shop and looked at the lizard food. So the yellow and black locusts that hop around and you feed them to your lizards, that's the desert locusts. And um, they come in that uh, dusky, like they're sort of dark when they're adults, but they also come in bright green. And it's the exact same species. It's the same thing. 
It just has a phase change where it goes from a solitary, beautiful grasshopper that's all alone, eating, not hurting anybody, and then there can be a shift. Um, and it's a serotonin spike that shifts until it becomes gregarious and they start swarming. So the, the research there, it was um, Professor Steve Simpson was looking at how, um, what is that shift? What is triggering that serotonin spike? And he found if you ag like agitate them, if they're jostling, if you sort of have them in a crowd and they start knocking against each other, that's when that chemical shift happens. So it was simulating locusts knocking against one another. So tickling them. <laughs> for, yeah. yeah. You, you said you used a paintbrush to tickle their yeah, knees. Yeah, so... You tickle a locust leg for five seconds every minute for eight hours, and then it will have a completely different behavior. So the, the, the appearance takes a generation to come through, and it will be brown and um, yellow later on. But um, the behavior, is, it goes from being uh, scared of locusts and running away to wanting to aggregate and like moving together. Did you have any interest in fermentation as food before you got into the science of it? Particularly, I like I like food, and so I think that's what drew me to the lab, as well as the strong emphasis on outreach. So it's very hard to get people excited about bacteria. Um, people are just like, "Oh, it's a disease," or "Wash your hands," or "Overuse of antibiotics." But this is something that I can take a, a cheese or a jar of kimchi and talk to somebody about it, and I think. Um, it became important to me to be able to talk to the general public about research. I think from a teaching background, finding a way that you can like easily explain complex scientific ideas by being like, hey, this cheese is like this. And why is it like that? And what is going on with this microbe and that microbe? Oh, that's great. Yeah. It's also like uh, the, the, the sauerkraut can be a foot in the door to a, to a broader view of the microbiological world. Yeah, and the cheese as well. Like you can, you can take cheese anywhere, and people will be excited because it stinks. Like it <laughs> immediately draws people in because you're like, "Hey, smell this!" And then they're like, "Okay, <laughs> that's really gross." Um, well, I suppose you can do that with kimchi as well um, and sauerkraut. They have like smells and textures that are exciting, you know. Totally. Um, so maybe you could start off by giving me sort of a character sketch of lactic acid bacteria as a group. What are these organisms like? What do we know about them and, and how do you think about them? So uh, lactic acid bacteria are a, a whole group and there's many different species in this group. And for the most part, they're called grass, generally regarded as safe. So the FDA doesn't really care about them. Um, they're in so many food products. The more you study, the more you find. So there's hundreds and, you know, so they're not going to go around saying this one is safe and this one and this one. They're just, as a blanket, they're safe. Um, they're in so many foods. Um, and as a rule, they take sugars and they ferment them into lactic acid. That's pretty much the, the basic. Some of them are a little more complex and they'll turn things into lactic acid and um, acetic acid and CO2. And so those are the heterofermenters. They do more than one thing. So you sort of think they're making two different uh, acids, whereas the homofermenters are just doing one thing. They're just making lactic acid. And that's the two big groups when you're thinking about lactic acid. And if I ever call them LABs, it's lactic acid bacteria. 
So we know that lactic acid bacteria are one of the major players in uh, in vegetable fermentations like kimchi or sauerkraut. But could you give us a broader picture about what's going on in the whole life cycle of a uh, of a microbial ecosystem inside a vegetable fermentation? So if you take like a jar of, of freshly made kimchi and it starts to ferment, who else is in this microbial cast of characters, and what do the struggles for dominance look like inside that jar? So. I'm sure you and your listeners have you maybe started experimenting during COVID with fermentation. So you know that um, if anyone started on sauerkraut, I think sauerkraut is underutilized compared to sourdough. But if you've done any fermenting of sauerkraut, which I think you should, um, you know that you don't add a starter. It's like that sourdough when you first do the starter culture, you're just relying on the natural who is there to inoculate the ingredients. So you take cabbage or if you're making kimchi, um, other ingredients, or you can make other ferments like adding in carrots or whatever. And the bacteria, these lactic acid bacteria are just present on the surface. But the one, the first thing that I did in my project was plate out the cabbages and I found that lactic acid bacteria are really low. If you're looking at the bacteria present on a vegetable, there's lots and lots of um, proteobacteria many, many things like Pseudomonas, um, uh, Sphingomonas. So these are um, bacteria that like living on plant leaves. And for the most part, they're really beautiful and colorful because they contain pigments that protect the bacteria from UV light. So if you think of a cabbage out in a field, it's actually exposed to really, really high levels of UV light. And it doesn't have a lot of water accessible on the leaf surface. So leaves are normally covered in a waxy film. And so there's not a lot of nutrients. There's not a lot of water. It's really hard to survive. And the bacteria that are there have a lot of pigments and ways that they can adhere to the surface of the plant and help them survive. And that's not really the lactic acid bacteria's way of living. So they're not really high, like very abundant on the leaf. But when you chop that leaf up, to make your sauerkraut, you're releasing those plant sugars. You're making them like very readily available. And then when you add the salt, you further draw out those sugars and you completely change the playing field. So you've gone from a, a high oxygen, high light, low nutrient condition to all the nutrients in the leaves are out and sloshing about. You take away the oxygen when you push it down into a mason jar and you add salt. And this is really, really strong abiotic selective pressure that will change who can live. And that's when the lactic acid bacteria really come into their own and they can start increasing in abundance. Now, I mentioned earlier the two big groups of lactic acid bacteria, the um, heterofermenters and the homofermenters. So at the very start of fermentation, we get a massive increase in the heterofermenters. So that's things like leuconostocks and vesselia. Um, and they really take off. And they're super abundant and they're making lactic acid and acetic acid. Now these two acids start lowering the pH and that makes it easier for the homofermenters to start growing. So you sort of see a two-phase I wish I had a whiteboard. You could draw it out where you have one population that increases and then a second population, so a second wave. Um, and that lowers the pH even more. And as the pH falls, um, those uh, proteobacteria that we were talking about 
they can't survive and they won't they won't be present at the end of fermentation. So uh, if I'm correct, this first group, uh, the heterofermenters that produce the multiple byproducts, uh, you said lactic acid and acetic acid. So acetic acid would be basically the, the acid in vinegar, right? And uh, lactic acid is uh, also what's coming out of the, the homo fermenters, the lactic acid bacteria that come in the second wave. Um, and is, is that – am I correct in thinking that's also the same thing that builds up in our muscles when we exercise and start to feel the aching and, and all that? The sort of the presence of the lactic acid bacteria causes the pain of exercise? Well, it's the same lactic acid. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Did I yeah. say bacteria? I'm sorry. I didn't mean to say that. Uh, the lactic acid, yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And actually, lactic acid is a less harsh acid. So if it was just fermented by heterofermenters and it just we ate a sauerkraut that was just made with acetic acid, it wouldn't be that nice. It'd be very, very, it'd be like a very harsh, like a pickle, like you wouldn't eat all of the pickle juice um, because it's very vinegary. Um, but when you have sauerkraut, it should have a, a softer, buttery flavor. So you have to sort of trust me on this one and go home and eat some and, and compare it to just straight pickles, which are quite acidic because that lactic acid has a softer, um, like it's not as sharp. Yeah, that's definitely something you notice uh, is a difference between uh, quick pickled foods that you use vinegar to pickle versus fermented foods where it comes from the bacteria. It's a much more soft, round, complex kind of flavor. Uh, so, so normally when you ferment vegetables and uh, and you're trying to, you know, you salt them, you make a brine, and you encourage the lactic acid bacteria. You said you see these two broad spikes with the heterofermenters and then the homofermenters. Um, but even within that, you're still going to see a lot of different species involved, right? That there can be widely different profiles of what exact lactic acid bacteria are taking over. Is that correct? Yes, there's a lot. So, um, looking at who's there, there's just some big players. So there'll be like Lactobacillus brevis in basically everything at a really high percentage. And then there'll be a lot of um, low numbers of many other ones. So we've just recently done a survey of North American fermented vegetable products, um, which I was really excited about because there's a lot of research on um, Asian products. So there's a whole research institute of kimchi in Korea, and there's um, a lot of research in Europe, but this is the first United States sauerkraut survey. And we found on average 10.8 species of lactic acid bacteria per jar, but most of them are, are some of the really common lactic acid bacteria. They take, they take up like the bulk. So would you find any noticeable differences in in like aromas or flavors produced depending on what the the microbial ecosystem in the the fermented jar of vegetables looks like i haven't i haven't done any specific research on that but i haven't myself noticed anything i think there can be a big difference between kimchi and sauerkraut which is hard to measure in terms of the bacteria that are present because there's so many other flavors going on. So some kimchis are fermented at a lower temperature. And when you're fermenting at a really cool temperature, like between 10 to 14 degrees Celsius, you're um, promoting those heterofermenters. So you get a different flavor. So there can be a lot of vesalia in kimchi, which is less prevalent in sauerkraut. Like they'll still be there, but in 
lower numbers. But it's very hard to compare the flavors and attribute that to the bacteria when you've also got garlic, ginger, red pepper, and, and everything else. That's one thing I found hard in doing the survey is that every producer might have different bacteria, but they all have like their slight tweaking of recipes. So mm. some had like caraway seeds or they threw in an apple just to like see what happens. <laughs> so you mentioned that, um, that the lactic acid bacteria tend to be found in very low numbers if you just take, say, a, a raw leaf of cabbage from the farm before fermentation. So where do, do we have any idea about where these microbes generally come from? Is it just something that's probably there on a leaf of cabbage, even though it's in very small numbers, and then the fermentation environment helps those numbers bulk up over time? Or are there other possible vectors? Yeah, so I, I went out to uh, 51 farms or common gardens um, in the summer of 2017 and tried to find environmental sources of lactic acid bacteria. So I took soil and leaf samples, so not cabbage leaf, um, weed leaves, so things that were just growing next to crop plants. Um, and I found that they had pretty low levels of lactic acid bacteria. So I, I didn't find like a big environmental reservoir of these bacteria, which I think it's pretty incredible that we know so much about them in the human micro, like the human gut microbiome and in probiotics and prebiotics and fermented foods, but very little is known about their ecology. And I couldn't find too much. I, I think I definitely talked about it in, the, in a previous podcast about maybe they're being factored in by insects. If you... You see papers where honeybees have lactic acid bacteria in their gut. Um, and they're very specific to bees, though. I think because bees take in nectar and then the sugars in the nectar can get broken down by lactic acid bacteria. But I haven't yet found any evidence that the insects and the insect droppings go on to be the source of lactic acid bacteria in fermented vegetables. So perhaps a very small amount of lactic acid bacteria in soil can then trans... Like, disperse onto cabbages repeatedly and then maybe it's just low levels everywhere it's it's still a puzzle is it possible also that some amount of it just comes from kitchen environments or other environments where this uh, where fermentations are prepared that it's on jars it's on spoons and all that kind of stuff that's been sort of talked about a lot and I'll have to look up the name for you, but there was a recent paper where they looked at a sauerkraut facility. So they, I think it was at one facility in Rhode Island. They went to this one place and they sampled fridges, doors, walls, everything, and they didn't find lactic acid bacteria in the environment. They only found levels on the cabbage. But if you're thinking about making sauerkraut in a facility, you're going to have tons of cabbage. So even if you put together like 10 cabbages in one giant vat, there's a lot of cabbage and you only need a tiny bit of the bacteria to make it, to get it to take off. Whereas if you think if you were making it at home and you use half a cabbage, then just by probability, by chance, you might make one that didn't have enough or didn't have any. But if you multiply the amount of ingredients, I think you will always have some amount of lactic acid bacteria. Now, was I reading uh, that previously you did some research with trying to grow sterile cabbage in order to to inoculate it with bacteria and see how the bacteria did on it? 
Yeah, I'm very excited about it. It came out in the Journal of Visualized Experiments and they uh, couldn't film because of COVID, but they'll be coming in on Wednesday. Um, but I managed to grow cabbages and I can send you pictures. Um, I managed to grow cabbages in glass tubes and they are sterile as far as I can tell. Like, you know, maybe there's some media that one bacteria can grow on. But as far as we can tell, they're completely sterile and they're happy and they're growing in calcined clay. You can autoclave that. So if you put in the autoclave, high heat, high pressure will be sterile. Add some nutrient broth and they're really happy. And now, did that research involve you trying to uh, see what kind of environment those previously sterile cabbages would make for different microbes? Or was that just to study the cabbage itself and how it could, um, how well it did without a microbiome? No, I wanted to do actual competition experiments with lactic acid bacteria and the phylosphere microbiome. So the phylosphere is the community of bacteria living on a leaf. So I wanted to say, well, maybe lactic acid bacteria are in low abundance because they need a particular microbe to grow with or there's competition. So I made all of this sterile cabbage. It took me years. And then I inoculated it with lactic acid bacteria and they don't grow. Like if you just spray a cabbage with lactic acid bacteria and it's happy, you don't put any other thing in there to compete with it, it won't grow. The cabbage or the lactic acid? Oh, the lactic uh, acid bacteria. The cabbage is fine. The cabbage, I wasn't interested. I haven't done any measuring of cabbages or their growth. Um, They do fine with or without a microbiome. I sprayed some yeast on cabbages once and they didn't enjoy that. The cabbages went (laughs) brown and just withered. But um, bacteria are fine on cabbage. Uh, They don't influence the cabbage. But yeah, I did uh, 20 bacteria that you just naturally find on a cabbage are things like the uh, uh, pseudomonas that I mentioned. So things like that, I sprayed them on the cabbage and they will increase. You will see like they're happy growing on a cabbage. The lactic acid bacteria tank. So it's very hard to do an experiment with something that won't grow. Like I mix it with other things, they grow, bacteria goes down. The lactic acid. Wow. Uh, so we know that uh, obviously these lactic acid bacteria are the main player in vegetable fermentations, but there are fungal microbes like yeast, we've mentioned a little bit, that are major players in other kinds of fermentation, of course, in like bread or in uh, wine or beer. Uh, did you mention over our email that um, that in looking at store-bought uh, preparations of kimchi, you found yeast in some of them? That seems kind of surprising. Yeah, so I tried really hard to find some literature on this. And you only see a few um, papers from a long time ago stating that yeast are um, sometimes found as spoilage organisms. But when I did this North American sauerkraut survey or fermented vegetable product survey, so it was sauerkrauts and kimchi, I found over half of them had yeast, like a lot, a lot of yeast, like some of them had more counts of yeast than bacteria, which I was really surprised by. So the back, the yeast that I found is safe. They're things like Kazakhstania, which you do find in sourdough. So they're not, they're not toxic, but um, everything that you read says they're undesirable in fermented vegetable products because they give musty, yeasty, sort of dankish flavors, I guess. And they can form a film, which I think is pretty off-putting if you're trying to create a new product and it's covered in a yeast film. 
Yeah, you don't want your uh, sauerkraut to smell like skunky beer. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely not. It's already, uh, yeah, it's a tough sell. When I had this, I had 51 jars and I was delighted. And I was like, hey, who wants some? And I I opened and sampled them all in the conference room, um, a smaller room than this at Tufts. And people were not happy. They were like, wow, the whole room stank (laughs) for a week. I think it's just in an enclosed space, opening 51 jars of sauerkraut and uh, kimchi was a little much. But yeah, and I tried to eat them all, but I... I really could. <laughs> that's, that's a lot. But um, you couldn't eat fifty jars of kimchi by yourself, or uh, <laughs> no. sauerkraut and kimchi. <laughs> no, I tried so hard, I couldn't do it. In part, that's why I wrote the grant. I was like, now I can get to eat all of it if I write a grant that says I need to buy them all. So. <laughs> uh, well, that makes me think. Uh, you you correctly guessed that one of the things that uh, got me interested in talking about kimchi on our podcast is that I had been trying to make it at home for the first time recently. Uh, and one thing that has, so I, I've loved kimchi for years and I've always put off trying to make it because it seemed like a scary, daunting, potentially dangerous procedure if you're fermenting things and you don't know what you're doing. But honestly, I, I found it easier than I expected it to be. So I guess one thing a lot of people are probably wondering is how, how safe is it to experiment with making sauerkraut or kimchi or some other lacto-fermented vegetable? Is this something that's probably going to poison you if you screw it up, or is it pretty forgiving? That's a, that's a great a great question because I think people are really scared, and when people come over, they're like, "Oh," because I have a lot of ferments on my fridge these days. But um, they're actually pretty safe. Anything that's anaerobic, um, you're really really making it very hard for things like E. coli and listeria to grow. So they're pretty safe if you do get the anaerobic conditions correctly. So sometimes if you're fermenting in a mason jar and you have like a pocket of air on the top, you'll notice the very top layer of your ferment might be a little off and then you can just take that off and then push it down so that it's submerged. But probably not an official thing to say. <laughs> so basically as long as you've got the salt there and the stuff's underwater it's it's going to be safe. Yeah, I think that's one thing that I found remarkable with everything that I've done with everything that I've read. I think that's why I just love this project so much because it seems so haphazard. Like you're just taking random ingredients and salt and yet it works so consistently. Um worldwide, you know, that's what's blows my mind. The things that we found in this North American survey are the exact same things that they find in Europe, the exact same things that they find in everything in Asia. So you're like, it's so robust. Broadly, what do you find amazing about fermentation? Well, that bacteria that we don't know how they, where they live in the environment, we can't find them in the environment, get into everything that we eat in a consistent, like it's amazing. We can't track them, but all over the world, there's the same species. And yet you can't follow it from a field to a cabbage. You know, that's amazing. <laughs> that is amazing. It, uh, I don't know. It, it's one of the things we actually love to talk about on this show is kind of uh, the, the hidden realities, the things that are so important to human culture, but that, you know, you, you wouldn't be able to see them looking at. I mean, you, I guess you don't see any microbes with your eyes normally unless they're starting a really big colony. But uh, but even with scientific instruments, like you don't know where all these uh, microbes are coming from. Yeah, yeah it's amazing. Like um, I was trying to write a review on dispersal, like 
how do how does a bacteria get from here to there? And you can read about the moving miles and mi thousands of miles on wind. It just gets in the wind and it just disperses. But you you've got no way of really knowing unless you sort of make genetically modified bacteria and release them, which I'm not going to do. But you know, like how could you know? <laughs> If there's bacteria, because they're so small, you'd never track them. I think it's amazing. So is there anything else you've been working on recently that uh, you wanted to talk about? Well, I, I was going to say, and I forgot to mention that I am doing a community assembly experiment. So I've got three yeast and three bacteria that were isolated. Uh, most of them were isolated from that sauerkraut survey. So I took the bacteria that I found in that survey, and I'm competing the yeast and the bacteria together in little jars of sterile vegetable extract. To, and I put them under different conditions, like different temperatures, different salt concentrations, um, and using different cabbage extracts, so red cabbage, green cabbage, and Napa cabbage, to see if any of those influence the presence of yeast. And actually, I think it looks like the temperature that I fermented at could be influencing the abundance of yeast. So at higher temperatures, perhaps you get more yeast. So maybe the North American fermenters are using um, different conditions. And that's why the ferments have more yeast, but I'm still working on that. Interesting. So if uh, if you're making kimchi at home or making sauerkraut at home and you want to keep the yeast out, a lower temperature fermentation might be a better way to do that? Yeah. So if the temperature in your room is getting sort of like above 24 degrees, you might want to put it in the basement or somewhere a little cooler. And I did notice that if you don't put salt in, it it can go horribly wrong. The pH just doesn't <laughs> fall as much because I tried that. And I was even adding lactic acid bacteria and the pH wasn't dropping as well as it should with a 2% of 4%. But there wasn't a big difference between 2 and 4, so I think sticking at 2% salt is good. Am I understanding the causality right there that the salt essentially makes um, makes an environment that's less hospitable for other types of bacteria and microbes to thrive, but the lactic acid bacteria are tolerant of salt? Is that it? That is it. That's what I always assumed um, and think is right when you have just regular cabbage. But I was using sterile filtered vegetable extract juice, you know, so just completely sterile media and adding lactic acid bacteria and yeast. So the lactic acid bacteria didn't have that much competition. You know, they're there with yeast and yet they still didn't do that well when there's no salt. Hmm. So yeah. maybe the salt is even helping it in some way? Yeah, that... I think there's got to be something going on with the salt as well. Hmm. Well, that's very interesting. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I think we have to call it there, but thank you so much for joining us today. This has been so great, and we really appreciate you sharing your time and your expertise. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Well, I guess that wraps up this episode, but once again, huge appreciation to Dr. Esther Miller for taking the time to speak with us. And uh, I will say, though this episode is over, there is that whole hidden world flowing into the fermentation jar. So it's possible that we may have to come back and explore other corners of, uh, of that world again in the future. In the meantime, if you would like to listen to other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you know where to find us. That is wherever you happen to get your podcast. And wherever that happens to be, just rate, review, and subscribe. Uh, those are just simple things you can do to help out the show. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. 
Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thank you.